Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Oh, Cobrafish. Why were you banished, Jojo? It's a long hotel, but uh, a small part of it would be Miss uh, uh, Clumsy. You were banished because you were clumsy? Uh, you so mightn't be saying that. Welcome, Masters and Padawans, to a special release of Full of Sick. I'm your host, Brian Young, and today we've got a special treat for you. Um, not too not too long ago, the Salt Lake City Public Library asked me to uh, host a conversation with Ian Dosher. You heard a, uh, a, a snippet of a conversation he and I had sort of in advance of that event a couple weeks ago on the show, and we have the full event here for you to listen to. It was really fascinating stuff. Um... For any of you familiar with the Star Wars, the Shakespeare Star Wars books, uh, you know Ian Dosher put those together and and did a really great job with them, and they're they're endlessly fascinating. And if you're a nerd for Shakespeare, they um, you know they really they really add to to the experience. And so he and I just kind of got into a a really nerdy conversation about Shakespeare and Star Wars uh, live on stage, and. Uh, you know, he uh, we we talked a little bit about his his Marvel Deadpool comic that has just come out uh, just a week or two ago, and we um, had a lot of fun and we took audience questions. So without further ado, uh, we'll have this uh, we'll have this this panel audio. I want to thank uh, Ian for for being so nice and gracious and smart and the Salt Lake, the Salt Lake City Public Library for inviting me to. Uh, to be part of this event, uh, and and it was it was a great time. So here's the panel, gentlemen. Welcome to uh, the Empire Striketh Back. I'm uh, Brian Young. I'm going to be asking the questions up here today. I write for StarWars.com and Star Wars Insider, and locally here you can read my Big Shiny Robot column both on BigShinyRobot.com and and in City Weekly. And I do a Star Wars podcast called Full of Sith, and so they asked me to come and ask the questions, and we have uh, Ian Dozier here today, and Ian is a New York Times bestseller, and, and three of those are the Shakespeare Star Wars adaptations, and he has been, he's traveled all over the world, uh, from Malaysia to London and all points in between, talking about this book, and now he's here in Salt Lake City. So without uh, further ado, I'd like everybody to give a warm round of applause to Ian. And- Hi there. Welcome to Salt Lake City. Thanks. So uh, I'd like to ask first, I mean, we're talking about uh, William Shakespeare's Star Wars, and I want to sort of ask where, where your love of Star Wars came from and your love of Shakespeare came from. 
So Love of Star Wars is before I have memories of, of anything. Uh, I was born in 1977, uh, grew up watching the movies. I remember seeing Return of the Jedi in the theater at age six. We had all the action figures, you know, had all the movies on VHS, you know, recorded off the video storage copies like we all did in the 80s. Uh, and uh, so it was just part of my life from really before I have firm memories of it. Um, Shakespeare, I came to really my freshman year of high school. I had a, a great freshman English teacher. I was also into theater, so we were reading plays already, and you know, and that was exciting. And the first play we read was Othello, and I loved Iago as a villain. He's such a great character. Um, and just the, the, the language made sense to me. The idea of meter, which we also learned about that same year, you know, made sense for whatever reason. I think, you know, I grew up having Dr. Seuss read to me, right? And Dr. Seuss is a stickler for meter, and uh, and so that all sort of made intuitive sense to me, and I I just fell in love with it. And and you know, the summer after my sophomore year of high school, Kenneth Branagh comes out with Much Ado About Nothing, uh, which I saw endless times in the theater, uh, more than I had ever seen a Star Wars movie in the theater, actually. Uh, and so just just fell in love with Shakespeare that way. Um, did you pursue Shakespeare? I mean, I noticed uh, in your schooling it didn't necessarily scream Shakespeare. Um, how much did you pursue that in your secondary ex- education? Not nearly as much as I wish I had. That's one of those, you know, if you could go back, I would take many more. Uh, I'd learn much more about Shakespeare. Because I took a single course in college, which was Shakespeare from script to screen. So we'd look at the play, then we'd look at some different adaptations of it. Um, And that was it. That was what I took. uh, Beyond reading the plays, going and seeing the plays, seeking out movies, uh, movie adaptations. um, Yeah, I mean, it was was mostly private. Is that something that that prepared you to work on these, where you're, you're actually sort of working in the opposite direction? Um, I mean, it prepared me in the sense of being really familiar with Shakespeare's language and, um, you know, and a lot of the most famous lines of Shakespeare, many of which I reference in these books and that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, I mean, definitely, uh, I guess I sort of felt like, you know, I was sort of saturated with Shakespeare like a sponge, right? So, so that when it was time to try to draw some of that out of me, it was, it was right there. So... What's the, what's the path you took to actually get these books together? Because it, it seems so natural now that we've had them for so many years, but uh, there was a time when these did, didn't exist. I mean, much the same way Star Wars didn't for a long time. Uh, but now it just seems like this is just a thing we have. So take us on that journey, and, and then we'll, we'll get into talking about the books themselves and, and sort of the language used. Sure. So the journey began uh, something like April 2012. Not to be too specific, it was like April 30th. Uh, I went up to. I'm from Portland, Oregon. I went to Seattle uh, to visit a couple friends, a couple buddies from high school, and we watched the Star Wars trilogy together. I, I mean, of course, I knew it frontward and backward, but hadn't seen it in a few years, and so was sort of revisiting it. A couple months later, I read Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, one of the first popular mashup books to come out. And uh, then right after finishing that book, my family and I went to the Oregon Shakespeare Festival uh, in Ashland, Oregon. And um, so I sort of had all three things bouncing around in my head, Shakespeare and Star Wars and mashups. And I was at the Shakespeare Festival one day and sort of had this idea, gosh, it'd be really fun to take Star Wars and rewrite it as though it were a play by Shakespeare. Um, 
And so then the, the, the sort of dumb luck started happening where I looked up, I, you know, cracked open the Pride and Prejudice and Zombies copy I had, looked up Quirk Books online because they were the publisher of it. And, um, and, Quirk, and the editor, uh, Jason Rekulak, uh, his information is right there online. And so I sent him an email and said, hey, I have this idea. Uh, I'm a total random stranger. You've never heard of me because I'm nobody, uh, but I have this idea. And he responded and said, it's an interesting idea. And we, uh, you know, if, if we did it, we'd need to get Lucasfilm on board. Uh, if you write something, let me know and I'll, I'll take a look at it. So that was enough encouragement for me. I'd always wanted to write books. I always assumed they would be academic books. Um, but that was enough encouragement for me to sit down and write the first act of the first book. Um, and I stayed pretty close to the movie in terms of not adding in a lot of my own things because I think of George Lucas being a somewhat litigious individual. Um, so I didn't want to, you know, get too crazy. I sent, that, I sent it off to Jason at Quirk Books and he called me that morning and said, I really want to do this and the next step is to get Lucasfilm on board. So he sent what I had done to Lucasfilm and they were the ones who sort of in their wisdom wrote back and said... We like what he's done so far, but we want to see if he can do more with it and have more fun with it and sort of take the concept all the way. So uh, they had me revise the first couple of scenes. And so that's when I decided to have R2-D2 speak in English to the audience in his asides. Uh, and that's when I had uh, stormtroopers talking about getting drinks at Moss Eisley with Darth Vader and things like that. So that was sent back to Lucasfilm. And then uh, Lucasfilm said, OK, we, we are prepared to license this and you know so we're ready to make the deal for the licensing at which point in my imagination what happens is that quirk books and lucasfilm to get together in a dark room and create this contract you know out of magic beans i don't i don't really i was mostly unaware of that process right during that process is when disney bought lucasfilm and we worried about what that was going to mean and it ended up really not meaning much it was still all okay uh so i always tell people who want to be writers, don't look at my experience as the way that this is going to go because I recognize that my experience is totally uh, lucky and unique in that sense. So as you're sitting down to actually, you've got your contract, you're working on A New Hope, which is the first one that you did, um, how, do you, how do you wrap your head around breaking down what a movie that is renowned through history for its groundbreaking visuals how are you going to bring that to life on the page through dialogue? So those are the, the first decisions that, I mean, when I sat down to write out that first act, I had to make some, some decisions. And some of the decisions were, am I going to talk about blasters and lightsabers? Or am I going, or am I going to change it to things like crossbows and swords? My, one of my sons asked me the other day, did they really have crossbows in Shakespeare's time? And I was like, I don't know. Maybe, I, probably. I think so. Anyway, uh, so, and I decided, okay, that needs to fall on the Star Wars side of the mashup. We need to be able to imagine that Shakespeare would have uh, thought that, you know, would have, could have envisioned lightsabers and, and blasters. Um, and then there was the question, okay, are there all these action sequences? Um, and so I, I remembered Henry V um, and how in Henry V, Shakespeare has the chorus come out and first at the beginning, basically apologize to the audience, you know, for this lowly stage not being able to uh, con 
contain the battles of Agincourt and Harfleur and those sorts of things. And so uh, I thought, okay, I'll use a chorus to come in and talk about, describe the action that's happening. In that first book, I really used the chorus too much. And that was, if there was one sort of criticism that I really took to heart from the first book, it was, it was that. And so I reduced the amount that I used the chorus in, in later books. Um, and then the other decision was, what do you do? I mean, you have the chorus, okay, what do you do with these words that are rolling up the screen at the start of the movie? Um, and so I decided to, to just, and that, this was, I think was the first moment where I sort of laid myself an unnecessary challenge in front of myself. Um, but I thought, okay, we're going to just turn this into a Shakespearean sonnet. Why not? You know, we, I think it'll work about, you know, about right with the, the length of it and everything. So I'm just going to do it right fast. Is that okay? Oh, please. Yeah, so, so this is how it went. It is a period of civil war. The spaceships of the rebels, striking swift from base unseen, have gained a victory o'er the cruel galactic empire, now adrift. Amidst the battle, rebel spies prevailed and stole the plans to a space station vast, whose powerful beams will later be unveiled and crush a planet, tis the Death Star blast. Pursued by agents sinister and cold, now Princess Leia to her home doth flee, delivering plans and a new hope, they hold, of bringing freedom to the galaxy. In time so long ago begins our play, in star-crossed galaxy far, far away. Which also took care of, of course, the screen with the blue words that say in a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Right, so it's killed two birds with one stone. So you, you've, you've talked some about how much you decided to bring Star Wars in, but there's a lot of Shakespeare in here too, and not just in the Elizabethan language or the, the mode in which he was writing. You know, 3PO's first line is straight from Richard III. Um, you know, Luke sort of gets a St. Crispin Day speech. Um, how did you decide how much and where you were going to be referencing Shakespeare? Well, first I'll say that I wanted to, I really wanted to do honor to Shakespeare in these books as much as I possibly could being mortal myself. Uh, and I've, I think we've all seen a lot of bad Shakespearean parodies, right? Uh, p- things where people add F to the end of a word, any word, and they say, okay, now I'm speaking Shakespearean, right? Um, and I wanted, so I, I was very conscious from the start of wanting to do a better job of that and wanting to be really true to the iambic pentameter, wanting to not only use some words that Shakespeare might have used, but also some of the literary devices he might have used, and then also the references. So most of the time, my references were unplanned. It would be, you know, I'd be writing a particular scene, and I'd think, gosh, this thing that this person is saying right now sounds an awful lot like this moment in Much Ado About Nothing or in Hamlet or whatever. Um, there were only a handful that were that were planned out in advance. The the very first line, not counting the opening sonnet, the very first line of all the books is is also the first line of a Shakespearean play, adapted in some way for my purposes, but it's referencing the first line. So those are those are more planned out. Um, and then, you know, visually, when we think about Shakespeare, uh, and well, let me see if I can find it really fast. Uh, you're so clever to have brought these books. Well done. Uh, so. Uh, Visually, when we think about Shakespeare, you know, there's, of course, one image that we all think of, uh, or there's one image, I should say, that when we see it, it makes us think of Shakespeare immediately. And it is Hamlet holding York's skull. 
right? Uh, and I knew I wanted to have that moment in these books. And so what we ended up with was um, after Luke and Han have been in the trash compactor, they've been in these stormtrooper outfits, and, uh, you know, so, so as Luke is changing back out into his normal clothes, he addresses his stormtrooper helmet, right? And, and, uh, and has this speech to the stormtrooper whom he didn't know, you know, alas, poor stormtrooper, I, I knew thee not, uh, is the, how, the, how it starts. Um, I'm wondering as you get through the, the later versions, the later books, right? So Empire proposes unique challenges, and every book subsequently sort of poses unique challenges. Um, I want to talk about some of those, like, like getting Yoda to speak in a way that's unique, or the sure. Ewoks. So, uh, so I, I said a minute ago that the, that opening sonnet of the first book was sort of the first challenge that I laid out unnecessarily for myself. And I sort of kept doing more and more of those. So I thought that when Han and Leia started getting romantic in Empire, it would be fun for them to start speaking in rhyming quatrains to each other the way that Romeo and Juliet do. Um, and, and, and Yoda, well, the first book had come out, and so this, with the second book, I, I wanted there to be some surprises, right? And after the first book came out, the, a few, few people said to me, oh, now everybody sounds like Yoda, right? Because when you're putting things in iambic pentameter, you're playing around with word order and that sort of thing. So, uh, so yeah, so do, people do end up sounding like Yoda a bit. So I wanted, to, I wanted to do something a little more interesting with him, and I thought about a few different things. So one idea I had was, if everybody else is speaking, is sort of going back to Elizabethan English, uh, maybe he needs to go back even farther and do something like Chaucer's English. And I tried writing a little bit of that, and it turns out that I'm really bad at writing Chaucer parody. Um, so then I thought, okay, if everybody's going back, maybe he goes forward to modern times. So instead of saying, do or do not, there is no try, he just says, oh, come on, do it. You're being ridiculous. Um, and then I thought, well, maybe, okay, maybe he, uh, instead of, uh, you know... It, Anything, maybe we just leave his speech exactly as it is in the movies, as a way of showing just how unique it is, and it truly is its own thing. Anyway, I was uh, just right in the midst of making this decision, was, was about to get to that point in writing Empire. I'd been trading emails back and forth with Quirk Books and Lucasfilm about what I should do with Yoda, and I had an idea one morning on a morning jog, uh, and as soon as I had the idea, I realized, yep, that's it. And, and now it feels obvious to me. And at the time, you know, it just, it just felt like it had clicked. So Yoda speaks all of his lines in haiku, which is totally not Shakespearean at all. We have no evidence at all that Shakespeare would have known about haiku in the slightest. But, uh, but it's very much in keeping with the spirit of this project, right? Which is to sort of do silly things with Star Wars. Um, so this is an example of Yoda's uh, line speaking to Luke as he's teaching him, uh, as he's training him uh, in Empire. Nay, size matters not. Look thou at me, I prithee. Judge me by my size and where you should not. For my ally, tis the force, a powerful ally. Life doth create it. Its energy surrounds us, binds us together. Luminous beings we are, not this crude matter. You must feel the force all around thee, here, between thou and me, tree, rock, everywhere it is. In between the land and your ever-sinking ship, 
the force is there, too. So, that's how Yoda ends up sounding. Thanks. But you've also got, say, singing on knots. Sure. Because, again, you've got, okay, you've got this alien character. I mean, basically, anytime you have an alien, char- an alien character show up, it's like, especially who's not speaking in English in the, in the movies... What are we going to do with these guys to make them fun? Yeah, so the Ugnaughts, who are the little, like, sort of pig-human-looking characters who, who throw around parts of C-3PO in the, in the junk shop, uh, they sing. They're kind of like the Seven Dwarves. Uh, they sing these jolly songs as they're going about their, their work. Because why not? I mean, I mean, my philosophy with these books, which just more and more over time was, if they don't want me to, they'll tell me no. And they did tell me no about certain things. There were things that they said no to. Uh, I wrote a, for Empire, I wrote the, sort of the missing scene, right, where, where Boba Fett arrives at Cloud City before Han Solo and Princess Leia and convinces Lando that he has to betray Han. I wrote out that whole scene and Lucasfilm cut out the whole thing. Uh, they basically said, this is too close to canon uh, for us to, to allow it. So, uh, but yeah, the Ugnaughts sing, the, the Wampa has a speech, um, because I thought it'd be fun to give some of the non-speaking creatures uh, a speech. Yeah. Well, one of my favorites, actually, and I, I wanted you to talk about this decision specifically, um, the Reek, the Ackley, and the Nexu in the, clo- in the Attack of the Clones, um, they're the three witches from Macbeth, really. Yeah. Uh, and I'm wondering, much. like, why, why you settled on that and, and where that came from. Uh, I think it was, so the Reek, the Ackley, and the Nexu, if you don't know, in Attack of the Clones, these are the arena animals who come out and try to kill uh, Padme and Anakin and Obi-Wan. And, uh, yeah, they, they are the, the three witches from Macbeth. So they come out saying, uh, and I don't remember exactly what they say, but they do some exact quotes here and there, and otherwise are just speaking in that same uh, iambic tetrameter uh, speech that the witches do. And, and it was really, I mean... Again, it was the thought process was here are three characters who three creatures. Um, clearly, I'm going to have them talk because that's what I've started doing now. All my creatures are talking, um, and I want them to be unique in a way that that the Rancor wasn't, that the Ugnots weren't, that the Wampa wasn't. You know, the space slug. Right, the space slug. Right. Uh, they they need to have their own special thing. And hey, there happened to be three of them. And what else came in three in Shakespeare's, right? So that was another one of those ones, not planned, but by the time I got around to it, it, you know, it, it, it just sort of clicked, right? The three witches, the three arena creatures, perfect, right? And, and it seemed to make, it, make sense. As you're going through the stories of all six of these uh, films... Um, I mean, obviously, George Lucas drew a lot on, if not directly from Shakespeare, but from movies and other cinema that had drawn from Shakespeare itself. Um, did you find sort of that, that, uh, that easy symmetry or that easy serendipity where you were like, oh, it's perfect. This is Julius Caesar. We're, we're doing this. Or, you know, there's a lot of Macbeth through Revenge of the Sith or, or, or whatever. Yeah, I mean, there, there are so many moments where things feel very similar, uh, you know. Palpatine seducing Anakin to the dark side feels so much like Lady Macbeth talking Macbeth into killing Duncan and trying to become king. Um, and uh, certainly moments where Luke is is thinking about Darth Vader, talking about Darth Vader as his father, feels so reminiscent of 
Hamlet and, and King Hamlet uh, and, and sort of the burden of being the son and what that, what that heritage means. So many of the themes overall just feel, feel similar, um, right? It feels like, uh, you know, whether it's, it's young people who are sort of starting their adventure and learning what their destinies are or lovers falling in love, um, you know, getting to rewrite Padme and Anakin's romance uh, in, and hope, hopefully help it along a little bit by putting it in a Shakespearean context uh, was a lot of fun. So, yeah, I mean, I think, there, I think Star Wars, like Shakespeare's plays, has so many of these resonances from the stories that are so popular through all of, throughout the world, really. So there, there's some interesting decisions that you made in the adaptation that don't necessarily have to do with uh, the language used, but actually scene order. And, and that's something um, that I found very interesting because these movies are so well-known and the sort of people, I think, who might pick up a Shakespeare adaptation know what order scenes go in. Um, but where, say, Anakin and Padme, uh, like you said, you know, they're, you kind of lumped all of their love scenes and their situations together on stage. So if, if someone were, were performing this, that would be a half an hour right there. You know? uh, so, so tell me about some of those changes that you made to the structure of the, of the films. Mostly it was done for practical reasons, right? If, if um, especially toward the end of the movies, we're flashing back and forth between you know, a battle scene, a fight scene, and some other scene, right? So in Return of the Jedi, we're between the Death Star battle, Luke fighting Darth Vader, and what's going on on the planet Endor, uh, moon of Endor. Uh, sorry, it's a, it's a moon, not a planet, guys. Gotta make sure I get that one right. Uh, the Star Wars police are called. Uh, anyway, so, uh, so, so they're flashing back and forth so quickly, and you, you really can't do that in theater. You know, so I was, I was really, try, at that point, trying to think of if these are really plays, right, you've got to lump some of that together. Uh, you know, maybe you can go back and forth a bit, but you can't go back and forth nearly as quickly as you do in the movies. Um, and the Padme and Anakin decision, I would say, was also... I mean, that was more because... I think in one long scene, I, I mean, it, it's like uh, it's like what Shakespeare did in um, Richard III uh, when when Richard is wooing Anne, and and he's you know in this beginning of the scene she starts off absolutely hating him, and by the end of the scene she's ready to be in love with him, and and so being able to see that whole arc happen in a single scene, I just thought had had some power to it. Um. Speaking about this sort of, I think one of the most uh, innovative uses that, that I admire greatly was the pod race, actually. And I'm wondering if you could describe the structure of that, of how that works in the book, and, and uh, how you how you arrived at that. Because you've been that was the fourth one you you'd done, so you're sort of an old hand at this by then. So the pod race is so it's another one of those scenes where where it's it, it, first of all it's a huge chunk of that movie. It's like a 12 minute constantly running action scene and with not a lot of dialogue happening um you know the occasional like woo or you know and that's sort of and and then and then the uh the commentator you know sort of describing what's happening and that's about all we get in the pod pod scene and so i didn't want to you know i had sort of 
given up using, overusing the chorus to come in, which probably, if, if it had been the first book I'd written, that's probably what I would have done. Probably the chorus would have described the whole entire thing that happened. Uh, so I'm glad that didn't happen. And so I was trying to think of other ways that Shakespeare uh, described hectic situations where there's a lot of action going on. And it sort of led me to some of the, the history plays where during battles, people are like, a messenger will run in and talk about something that's happening and then he'll run back out and somebody else will come in and say something and meanwhile the characters who are on stage are talking about what this means and all that and that's basically how the pod race ended up going um if i can remember qui-gon um uh shmi yeah yeah thank you uh qui-gon shmi Qui-Gon and Shmi are both on the stage the whole time. Padme and Jar Jar are going in and out like, like messengers, essentially, because they're the ones who are going off to go see what happens and then coming back to report. And then, um, and then you are also still getting the commentators who are still there, sort of off to the side. And, and basically, again, because we're thinking of this as, a, as being s- staged, Every now and then, what happens is that the pod racers all enter from one side and, and go that. That's, that. that's how they're making their laps, right? They're entering from one side of the stage, running across the stage, and going that way. You know? And that was sort of like, okay, now we've made something like the excitement of the pod race without being able to show what we saw in the movie. Um, one thing I'm curious about is, obviously, um, Shakespeare's sort of meant to be performed and spoken rather than read even though that's sort of how we introduce uh, people to Shakespeare. It's like, here's a book. You'll love Shakespeare. Trust us. Um, but I'm, I'm curious, in your writing process, is there a lot of you uh, saying all these things out loud and, and figuring out the cadence that way? And have you seen some performances of this? I mean, I know, I'm sure there's people who've done plenty of that. I've even seen Ian McDermott do some. <laughs> that was a special moment. Uh, so... so Officially, by and this is Lucasfilm, not me. Uh, the books are all copyrighted in Lucasfilm's name, not mine. That's one of the deals when you are a Star Wars author, because uh, it's their their property. And so uh, they have decreed that there are not to be any public readings, public performances, that sort of thing, um, uh, which is too bad. Um, hopefully, it changes at some point. Uh, but but that right now that's rule. I have seen a couple of yes, I have seen a couple of things happen here and there uh, that are happen underneath Lucasfilm's radar, and they don't seem to care. Um, uh, I don't. I certainly don't sit at home and perform them. Uh, you know, I mean, mostly that has to do with you know. Usually, I'm sitting and writing these. You know, like well, while my kids are asleep, and so I'm not going to be downstairs. You know giving a soliloquy to the, to the, to the quiet house. Um, so I, what I will do is I'll sit and, I mean, you know, as I reread through my manuscript, I sit and tap out iambic pentameter on my fingers, uh, and which, you know, 10 syllables, 10 fingers, so that works well. Um, I am more conscious, especially after that first book, because after the... When I wrote the first book, I only thought of it as a book. I didn't think of it as an actual play that might be performed. And only once the book was sort of about to come out did, did the requests from theaters and other actors and things like that start sort of trickling in about, hey, is this something we could actually do? Um, and uh, so then with the second book and, and subsequent books, 
I was thinking much more about, okay, how would this actually be staged? And, and in a Shakespearean context, right? So you'll, you'll see things like so-and-so enters on the balcony uh, and that sort of thing. And, and thinking, again, thinking about the pod race, you know, they enter from one side and exit on the other side. Uh, so I have written them more with performance in mind these days, and uh, it, it, it's, it's, it's fun the few times I've seen them performed. The Ian McDiarmid thing that, that Brian's talking about is, so Ian McDiarmid is the actor who played Palpatine, uh, and he was asked at Star Wars Celebration in Anaheim a couple years ago, uh, he, was, he was asked to read one of Palpatine's speeches from one of my books. And so, you know, he, and he, you know, he puts on his Palpatine voice and gets all like this and reads one of the speeches. And somebody, I wasn't there, the, I came later in the weekend, but, but I wasn't there when that happened. And somebody's, you know, tweeting to me, oh my goodness, you know, Ian McDiarmid is doing this right now. And so I hopped online and watched it. And yeah, that was, that's one of those top 10 moments about being an author. Absolutely. Well, and he's no slouch. I mean, he's probably done more Shakespeare than everybody. Right, um, other than Alec Guinness. Yeah. Anybody who's still alive, yeah. Um, and that actually sort of kind of ties into my next question with so many of the actors uh, or so many of the British actors sort of having that pedigree of Shakespeare and um, particularly more with the um, upper classes in the, the prequel books, were there lines that already, like, that you kind of had a hard time cracking into Pentameter because maybe they were they were close already. Well, there, there, I mean, there are some, what I like to call naturally occurring instances of Ivan Pentameter. Um, I, what was the one I was just thinking about from one of the movies? I don't remember. Princess Bride, I would not say such things if I were you and Humperdinck is getting all angry. I'm a Pentameter. Thank you, Princess Bride. Um, it is a period of civil war. I mean, that's, Directly, that is the first line of the of the crawl, in, uh, and that's I am a pentameter. So, uh, and I again, I wish I could remember what the other one was that I was thinking about recently. But yeah, so those things. So sometimes when those happens, it's like, well, let's just leave them alone, right? Why why touch something that's already good? Other times, it's well, we want those to sound a little more Shakespearean. Those those lines though weren't weren't as hard. I mean, the, the harder lines were the ones that are so famous that you're like how much do I mess with this line or not mess with this line? So the most famous line in all of the movies, no, I am your father. It's like, how am I going to play with this and, is it, and face the ire of Star Wars fans, potentially, uh, if I screw it up? Uh, or am I just going to leave it alone? And basically, I left it alone. I made it, no, I am thy father, right? Uh, but otherwise decided, let's leave this this line that's so famous, basically, as it is. As a Star Wars fan, what was, what was the scene that you were most excited to get to, to play with? And if I'm not mistaken, your, your favorite's Return of the Jedi. So was it in Return of the Jedi, or was it elsewhere? Uh, I mean, so some of the famous moments, I was excited to get to Han and Greedo uh, and, that, and that interaction and get to play with that. Um, I was excited to... You know, I mean, famous lines like, these aren't the droids you're looking for, were, were fun. Uh, in Jedi, I was very excited. One of the most sort of fun and touching moments for me in Jedi is after the Rancor dies, uh, the Rancor Keeper comes out and cries on the shoulder of his friend because he's so sad about that, you know. And it's just such a lovely, almost a throwaway moment, right? It's so lovely. And 
And in Shakespeare, he would never just cry silently. Of course, he's going to have a soliloquy <laughs> to tell you exactly how he's feeling in that moment and why he's so sad. So I was very excited to write. I mean, I knew I was going to write that one and was excited to write that. And that was, that was a fun one. Um, what about some of the, the scenes that had... Uh, um, the, the, there's a lot of um, language that you, you sort of dressed up with, with metaphors in a way that you wouldn't necessarily expect... Um, I'm thinking specifically in Revenge of the Sith where you have the confrontation between Anakin and Obi-Wan and it evokes all of this imagery of uh, boats and sailing and it kind of reminded me of the way the scene ends up playing out with all of that swashbuckling sort of without the boat. Uh, and I'm wondering where, where you, you sort of decided on using those sorts of devices. And again, those were ones that came up just sort of just sort of randomly, right? Uh, I wish I could... I shouldn't say that. I should give a better answer, which is I planned those out studiously and thought very carefully about them. Uh, picked just the right metaphor. That's really not true. I, uh, with that one... I mean, I'm sure what happened is that... I don't remember, I don't remember what the first line of that, of that dialogue is where they start getting into all of this seafaring language that they suddenly are using. But I'm sure that I, that I you know, said something about, you know the ship of your ambition or whatever it was, right? And I was like, huh, that's kind of fun. Let's, let's play with that. And so then, you know, we're talking about tides and we're talking about anchors and compasses and, and then it starts to be a game of how long can I keep this going on? You know, like without it and have it still make sense. Because Shakespeare would do that from time, you know, um, he would extend a metaphor out and where where characters would be shooting it back and forth with each other uh, and and it's fun it's fun to do uh, and and then eventually at some point it it you know ebbs uh, going going back to uh, sticking with Revenge of the Sith but going back to something you said a little earlier about how Han and Leia had the rhyming quatrains uh, which is something that you would kept up with Anakin and Padme to some degree, and then through Revenge of the Sith that starts breaking, and I'm wondering if you could talk about that decision. Yeah, so so I, so I it made sense to me that when Anakin and Padme fall in love that they end up doing the same thing Han and Leia do with these rhyming quatrains, but then uh, in, the, in the sort of final scene between the two of them, where ultimately at the end Anakin will force choke her and knock her unconscious, they're still... Trying to like they're trying to hold their love together, but it's not working, and so they their rhymes start being imperfect. Um, so instead of you know these instead of rhyming every every other well they're quatrains right. So instead of rhyming every other line perfectly, the rhymes are just a little bit off. So you so it was my way of marking like they're still trying, but it's not it's not working. It's not clicking in the same way that it was before. It's not something that you'd probably pick up on if you were just if you were just watching it but again one of those one of those unnecessary challenges that I, I thought would be fun well there there was a lot of those i mean the caminoans the the cloners sort of had a really interesting so that one and that one was that was probably the biggest challenge uh, yeah and it's so, so what all you don't necessarily yeah. notice but if you could explain it sure so so the scene on camino which is the uh, the planet where the cloners, the people who are making the clones, actually live. And there are these, there's these very unique-looking characters with those very long necks, and they look sort of, uh, you know, uh, otherworldly. Yeah, very alien, yes. Uh, and 
I wanted, I was already, I had already given myself this challenge of uh, the clone army, the clone troopers, uh, every time they, every, the first letter of their sentences is the same as the last letter of their sentences. They're cloning their, their first and last letters, essentially. That was a way of marking them off as clone troopers. So I thought, okay, if the clone troopers are doing that, what are the cloners themselves doing? And I had read a book, which I'm sure many of you have, have heard of or read, called uh, Goodall Escher Bach by Douglas Hofstetter. Uh, it came out in the early 80s. Um, and he, it's a book about math and art and music. Um, but throughout, he has these dialogues uh, inspired by Lewis Carroll between uh, Achilles and the tortoise. And one of the dialogues, which he calls Crab Cannon, has... The line, each line of Achilles and Tortoise in this dialogue is repeated at the end. So Achilles's very first line is, I think, the tortoise's very last line. And the second line of the dialogue is the next to last line. And they finally meet in the middle at this speech that the, the crab has and the crab cannon. Um, and I thought, I'm going to try that with the Camino, with, the, with these Caminoans. Uh, the very first line that one of them speaks in that scene is going to be the very last line of that scene, which also meant it was another case where I took sort of three scenes that were split up in the movie and put them all into one uh, so that I could do this thing. And so you have to figure out, okay, if you're going to repeat the exact same lines, but Obi-Wan is still interacting with them in his own words, and they still have to have a scene that makes sense. So their words have to be flexible enough that when the lines go in this order, they are different and they mean something different than when they're going in this order. And so that was the challenge that I, that I gave myself and it sort of centered on this longer speech that one of the cloners has that sort of explains their whole operation and then they start repeating their lines. And, and it, it worked out. It, you know, it's one of those things that you get to the end of and you're like, whew, okay, I'm done for the day. Um, another one of those situations uh, I was hoping you could elaborate on was Boba Fett. So Boba Fett is another character. Once we're in the second book and we're at Empire, what are you going to do that's going to be interesting and and surprising for people? In the first book, I stayed totally true to iambic pentameter, mostly because I didn't want people to say, okay, he's getting lazy now, um, you know, and he's he's taking a break. Um, Even though Shakespeare uh, used lots of prose in his plays, often, but not always, but often to delineate a lower class character from a a higher class character. So I decided in Empire to introduce a character who speaks in prose, and I decided who better than Boba Fett. And especially because, I mean, that's that's another one of those things where you're sort of reverse engineering engineering a character. You're going to make much more of him and give him more dialogue in a book written almost 30 years after the movie comes out than you are... uh, you know, in the movie itself. In the movie itself, he only has two or three tiny little lines. Uh, but in the, bo- in the play, he needs to have more because he's such a popular character. So he, sp- he speaks in prose throughout, and, and that, was, that was another fun one where, I mean, it's fun to get inside these characters' heads and think, okay, what is going on for them? What's their motivation? Turns out that Boba Fett's motivation is basically money and power. Uh, and, uh, and so he... Yeah, he has these speeches where he's talking about, you know, how he would gladly do anything to against Han Solo on behalf of Darth Vader because he's going to get paid by Darth Vader. He's going to get paid by Jabba the Hutt. So it's a great life being a, being a bounty hunter. 
So as you're working on these, um, obviously you have favorite Shakespeare plays, uh, and I'm wondering sort of what plays of Shakespeare's you leaned on the hardest or that were your favorite or maybe they were, they were different um, as you were working on these. I know Hamlet and Much Ado best, probably thanks, uh, especially with Much Ado, thanks to Kenneth Branagh for sure. Um, and so those are the ones that end up being referenced most often in, uh, in my books. And um, which is also, it's sort of funny because in Empire, which is the darkest of the original trilogy, it's Much Ado that gets referenced more than any other play. So I'm not sure, I'm sure why, it's just one of those random things that happen. Um, other plays get referenced, I mean, other favorites of mine, uh, The Tempest is a play that I love. Um, I love Henry V. Um, and so, so you'll see a fair amount of those uh, portrayed as well. Um, so I'm, I'm sure there is, you know, a direct correlation between the number of times I reference a play and how much I like that play, for sure. What might be the most obscure play that got referenced in these? Uh, well, in Attack of the Clones, during that scene where, where um, Padme and Anakin are falling in love, they borrow lines from every single one of Shakespeare's comedies. Uh, from, from one of the sets of lovers in every single one of Shakespeare's comedies because my idea was sort of we're going to surround them by this cloud of lovers and help their love along, right? Uh, but they're going to, by having them reference those lines. I did a similar thing in Revenge of the Sith where Anakin throughout his lines in that play, he uh, uses a line or references a line from every single one of the tragic heroes in all of Shakespeare's tragedies. So probably the most obscure play that got referenced was one of the lesser-known tragedies like uh, maybe Troilus and Cressida or Coriolanus or something like that. Um, Shakespeare was notorious for making up words and bringing new, n- new things to the table. And I mean, you didn't have to um, make up a lot of words, at least to talk in the vocabulary of Star Wars, but was there anything in that vein that you did uh, that, that you kind of brought something new in that regard to the language? I don't think I necess- I don't think I probably made up any words. I think I think more it was it was having to do things like take uh, the you know the word millennium as in Millennium Falcon is never going to work in iambic pentameter because it's just uh, or I'm sorry no I'm sorry the whole phrase Millennium Falcon is never going to work. Millennium would be fine on its own, but you get Millennium Falcon. You've got the, that neum in there. It's two syllables. You can't, you can't get rid of it. So there's something you got to do something. So I, every single time I used it, it ended up being uh, abbreviated with an apostrophe. So it's sort of more like Millennium Falcon, right? Uh, and so you have to do some things like that that are not perfect. Uh, and similarly, you have to decide with words like Skywalker or Stormtrooper, which really are two accented syllables followed by an unaccented, which again is not going to fly in iambic pentameter. So, so you basically have to decide how you're going to emphasize it. Uh, and so, so it was things like that where, where I had to make those sorts of decisions. Not so much, I think, uh, making up words. Just figuring out how to cram all the words George Lucas made yeah, exactly. into, into yeah. this. Um, are there, as, as you go through... Um, I mean, you, you've done six of these, and you borrowed a lot from Shakespeare, and that uh, 
kind of makes it sound authentically Shakespeare, but are there any lines that you kind of cut from whole cloth that you're particularly proud of, that you got to the end of the day writing and you were just like, yep, that was a good one? A reference that I threw in? No, I think it's actually more often references that I look back on and I'm like, that was t- that was too obvious. That was too painful. The Pulp uh, Fiction one. What was that? The Pulp Fiction one. Well, the Pulp Fiction, well, well if we're going to talk about that kind of reference... Well, yeah, I was sure. just talking about a line in general, but oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. we can talk about the references yeah. as well. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of before the uh, final big Death Star battle in the first book, uh, Luke... He has what is essentially King Henry's St. Crispin's Day speech, rousing the rebels. But he starts it off with Mark Antony from Julius Caesar and says, Friends, rebels, starfighters, lend me your ears. And that's one of those ones that I would probably, if I were ever going to do a special edition Star Wars, I would probably remove that one. This just feels a little too obvious. I did have in my manuscript and then took it out before I ever sent it off. Uh, when Luke is pondering whether he will leave Tatooine, I had... To go or not to go, that is the question, and decided that that was too much. Too on the nose. But what about other pop culture references? And this is something I want to talk about as well. Um, Just this last week, you had uh, a comic book come out. You did an issue of Deadpool as Shakespeare. Um, And I'm wondering about working pop culture references into Shakespearean dialogue. And that's something that, that got snuck in here now and again, but it's on display front and center in Deadpool. So in the, in the Star Wars books, um, in the first book, it was just a handful of little things that I threw in. And it's kind of like, well, why not? Nobody's ever going to know about this except for me and a few people who might catch it. And some of the things were truly like things only I would get. Um, so in my sons are named Liam and Graham. And in... Uh, I think it's Attack of the Clones. Uh, he's uh, Obi-Wan comes and visits Yoda at the Jedi Temple, and Yoda asks one of the Padawans who he's training to do something. And in the movie, that child's name is Liam. Uh, and so I have him end the... I don't remember what the final word of Yoda's line is there, but whatever... it's. I think it's maybe diagram, right? I worked in gram into that line also, right? To get both my kids in there. Um, so those are the kinds of things that nobody in general is going to notice. Other things I threw in... So I threw in a Star Trek reference into um, uh, the original book, thinking this will be fun. Some people will catch it, some people won't. And then as things went on and as things progressed, again, that philosophy of, well, I'll try it and we'll see if anybody picks up on it or not. Uh, And if they do, if they let me do it or not. Um, So uh, all of Mace Windu's lines... Are include the title of a Samuel L. Jackson movie, right? So working the words Pulp Fiction into a line, you know, was a challenge. And actually, I mean, that was also a big challenge because by the time Mace Windu dies, I'm scraping the bottom of the barrel of Samuel L. Jackson movie titles because there are some that you just plain can't use. Uh, you know, things like uh, oh, what's, a, what's a good example? Things that would have some sort of name in it that. You, you just you just can't use it. I can't think of a good example right now. But um, uh, but do the right thing is easy. But do the right thing is easy. Yeah, you're right. Whereas Captain America is not possible, right? Because you, you can't use the word America. In fact, I learned from Lucasfilm you can't use the word Earth. I was using it in the sense of you know this Earth beneath my feet, and they were like, no, no, we don't use the word Earth at all in Star Wars. <laughs> um, so so yeah, so I did things like that when when. Um, 
Oh, I've, I've got it here. I'll just read it really fast. When, when Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan are about to face off against Darth Maul um, in, the, in the end of The Phantom Menace, I thought, okay, this is a really good opportunity for a, a quick reference that a lot of people are going to get. Not, not everybody's going to get it, but a lot of people are. So this is the speech that Qui-Gon makes to, uh, to Darth Maul right before they fight. I know not who you are or what you want, yet I do have skills most particular acquired throughout a Jedi's long career. These skills do make me nightmarish to such as you. Surrender now and you shall live. If not, you shall be dead and there's an end. <laughs> Which, if it doesn't sound familiar, this is Liam Neeson's famous speech from Taken uh, when he's talking to the people who have taken his daughter, right? So, so for people who get that and get that Liam Neeson played Qui-Gon Jinn, it's a fun thing to, it's a fun Easter egg, right? And, and other people won't catch it and won't think anything of it. Um, so, yeah, so I threw in all kinds of stuff. I threw in the lyrics to uh, The Power of Love from, you know, that was famous, made famous by Back to the Future, the Huey Lewis and the News song, uh, and, I mean, just, just all kinds of stuff, just because, why not? So, with Star Wars, you're very much like Han Solo, smuggling all of that in, but with Deadpool, it's very much, uh, it needs to be on the surface. Yeah, so with Dead, with the Deadpool comic that I wrote, Deadpool is basically wakes up and finds himself in Shakespeare's world. And in fact, he sort of finds himself at the confluence of four different Shakespearean plays. And he's trying to figure out not only how in the heck he got here, but, you know, but what he's going to do with this situation, with all these people who are fighting with each other and wanting him to help. And, um, and so he starts... So being Deadpool, he can, he can do whatever he wants to do. He's not really bound by any rules. He's not bound by a universe you have to protect or by Shakespeare's time or anything. So, so yeah, so I threw in references to, uh, you know, I mean, Deadpool saying in iambic pentameter in Shakespearean language, but basically saying that he needs to make a plan just like the A-team or MacGyver would, right? Um, and he uses a couple of words. I mean, talk about making up words. He uses a couple of words that... Uh, so one of them is, he says, we are foobard quite. Um, so he made up that Shakespearean word. Uh, he also talks about not wanting his... Uh, he, he, one of the characters makes reference to his mother as his mother being uh, Gertrude in Hamlet, uh, right? And Deadpool ends up being sort of a Hamlet character in one of the four. Uh, and he talks about how she had... Uh, seeing her be milfed. Um, so... There's those sorts of things where it's like, I'm going to throw this in and Deadpool is edgy enough that I can do that and get away with it and, and it's okay. Um, and that was, I mean, talk about creative freedom. I mean, with Lucasfilm, you send them things and you hope that they'll say yes to everything and they do say no to some things. Marvel, I would write these things and I'd send them off and they'd, I send them off an act at a time and they'd write back and be like, this is great. Fantastic. <laughs> great. Um, so... We have a microphone in the audience. If people want to ask some questions, before we get to audience questions, I wanted to ask about Jar Jar. Now, Jar Jar's a character I love, and he got a very interesting treatment in the, the books here. And I'm wondering if you could talk about that and why you made that decision. So when you're approaching the prequels, uh, you have to do something with Jar Jar because, because he is probably film history's most debated character, 
some people love him. Some people really, really hate him and feel that he ruined an entire Star Wars movie. Um, I'm, I'm mostly ambivalent about Star Wars. Some people are ambivalent, like me. Um, uh, but I knew I had to do something to address him. And so I did something sort of similar to what I'd done with R2-D2, where when he's talking to the audience, he's saying one thing, and when he's... Uh, I'm sorry, yes, when to audience, he's, and when he's talking with other characters, he's another way. But with R2-D2, it was... He talks to other characters and beeps and squeaks like he does in the movie, and when he turns to the audience, he's speaking in English, but you're getting basically what you expect to get from R2-D2. You're getting his nobility, his snarkiness, you know, all those things that you'd expect to get from R2. Jar Jar, on the other hand, when he's talking with other characters, he's very similar to how he is. He's Jar Jar. He's stupid. Um, And in fact, my sort of fun little language thing to do with him was to give him nine syllables in every line instead of ten, so he's sort of one sandwich sort of picnic kind of thing, right? Um, But then he turns to the audience and you realize that he is actually brilliant uh, and actually sort of masterminding a lot of the, uh, the events that are going on. Um, so let me find my let me find my Phantom Menace sheet really fast here, um, I'll, and I'll explain what his first. So the very first time that that we meet him, if you remember in the movie, we see uh, Qui Gon sort of running away from Jar uh, from uh, some battle droids who are chasing him, and that's when he sort of runs into Jar Jar and they meet. Um, in this moment, we we get to before we see Jar Jar ever talk to anybody. So before we see him ever be stupid, he has this aside to the audience uh, where, where we're learning about some of his motivations and basically hearing him say, I'm going to put on this act right now for this, uh, you know, for this man and, and here's why. So this is what he says. A man approacheth clothed in Jedi garb, but like this man brings aid unto Naboo, such as will help my people and my land. Mayhap this is the chance I have desired. For I have wandered low these many months at thinking o'er this planet's dreary fate. Two peoples separated by their fear and prejudice, which e'er doth make us shirk from giving help unto each other. I, it may be, the only hope for us to be united is to realize that our two fates are tightly knit as one. Perchance this Jedi, followed by these droids, doth bring the words to break our deep mistrust. I shall make introduction in my way. Portray the part that I have learned so well. It doth befit the human prejudice to think we Gungans simple, low, and rude. I shall approach him thus, yet shall bend him to the path that shall assist us all. Put on thy simple wits now, Jar Jar Binks, thus play the role of clown to stoke his pride. And then he meets Jar, you know, Qui-Gon, and he's stupid. So, thanks. So we've got, we've got the microphone around. If anyone has any questions... Um, well, you answered a lot of the questions that I already had. Um, what one uh, maybe you feel like you've already answered this. Uh, so it sounds like you were pretty excited to write, you know, the the, the original three books. Uh, were there books that you were more enthusiastic and excited about the tasks, and ones that were where you really thought, oh man, this is this is really hard, or this is this is more difficult or this is less fun you know than maybe the challenge of doing uh one of the other books uh when it came so i never thought i was going to do the prequels um and 
people would ask, and I would say, no, I'm not going to do the prequels. And then I would sort of would say, well, maybe if we did the prequels, we would put them in like a single play, right? And sort of rewrite it as a prehistory of the empire or something like that. Um, but what happened was that at book events, I kept getting questions, not only from adults, but especially from kids, to please write the prequels. You know, people asking me to write the prequels. And so my editor and I finally talked about it and decided, okay, well, we'll do this, you know. Uh, and they'll all come out in one year, uh, and it will be exciting for all of us. <laughs> so I did not, I had seen the prequels a few times, but didn't know them well at all. And so I actually got together with a group of friends on a conference call to basically talk through the prequels, to partially just to understand, to make sure I understood what was going on in them, right? They're so full of back and forth and people betraying each other, and, and they remind me a lot of. Shakespeare's history plays where there's so much sort of political stuff going on. And, um, and so I was not as excited to jump into them as I was to jump into the original trilogy when I was doing that. Um, and I wrote all three of the prequels in like a six-month span. Um, and by the time I was at the end of Revenge of the Sith, I was like, okay, okay, we're ready. We're ready to be done here. Let's... <laughs> Let's do this. Let's get this over, you know. Uh, yeah. So I am, would, am happy to return, to return to it now, but doing like three books right in a row with the movies that aren't necessarily my favorites was, was, uh, was a little tougher. I really love all of the soliloquy that you have uh, with um, Luke when his aunt and uncle die. He has that moment of saying he'll make them proud. And uh, I also love that you gave Darth Vader more to say in the last one and uh, even though I think the movies are amazing I did think that it came to fill some of those holes maybe and uh, just it felt like oh I get it why he turns around again at the end so I was wondering if you had if you felt like you needed to do that I mean that was one of the things that's so much fun about doing this in a, in a Shakespearean context right is, is that you do get to do these soliloquies where, yeah, where essentially you get to learn more about these characters, you know? And what Star Wars fan wouldn't want to get inside the heads of his favorite characters and think about what's going on inside there? So, yeah, so for Darth Vader in Return of the Jedi, getting to do that uh, was one of my favorites. For Emperor Pal for Palpatine in Revenge of the Sith, such a good villain, you know, uh, and to get to do that. Uh, for Lando, who in the movies is just so, you know, slick and sly, you know, but you've But if he's actually a human, uh, hopefully he has some feelings going on about betraying his friend and that sort of thing. And so getting to express some of that. Uh, yeah, I, I really enjoy doing that. And hopefully it does sort of add new dimension to some of these characters. A, a question and a request. Um, you talked about being under the Lucasfilm's radar. Is it, and maybe you don't know the answer, but is it a problem for, uh, let's say, a junior high or high school to perform something like this? Uh, for no, uh, for free, or yeah, unfortunately, they're they're just giving a blanket no right they don't now like that. for any kind of pub public performances. Yeah, I I really wish it weren't true, but in a classroom that would be different, though, right? And it, yeah, and there are certainly classrooms who have for that study, have used right. it, but, not but they're the, working on scenes in the class and that sort of thing. Yeah, right. But not for the parents' recital sort of. Thing. Yeah, at yeah. Least, at least I mean yet. that's the official that's the official word. Lucasfilm isn't following up on anything. But that's the official word. So be it. And then um, 
I would love if you would give us a liloquy or two that are your favorites, because as you said earlier, this is it's something to be on paper. It's one thing to enjoy it and hear it live. Thank you. Okay. Well, if you insist, <laughs> I, yeah, I bring him with me everywhere I go. Uh, um, let me just think really fast here. Um, in, okay, in Revenge of the Sith, we, um, we have what is really a very sad, lovely scene uh, where all of the Jedi all over the galaxy are being killed and just sort of mowed down. Um, and it's, there's no dialogue. We just see it all happening. And so that was another one of those situations where you've got to figure out how you're going to portray that. And I decided to give... Palpatine, Sidious, a, a monologue where he's talking about what's going on. So uh, this is what he says, and I like it because it's, it's one of those, hopefully, yeah, you all will be the judge, but hopefully a good villain soliloquy. Oh, perfect, dark, and evil strategy come to fruition in a trice. Forsooth, behold the power of the mighty Sith as we release our Order 66. The cloak of death we rapidly unveil and show the Reaper Grim who waits therein. The Jedi, spread throughout the galaxy, engaged in battles with the Separatists, shall suffer as no group e'er suffered yet. Those fighting with their little lightsabers, or flying into battle in a ship, or cruising o'er a planet's bluest shore... Each wretched Jedi meets a quick demise. Go, ravens of the dark side, call for death. Feast ye upon the Jedi carrion. Let each rank body of each Jedi knight fall as you peck them into death's embrace. Go, black and lethal banthas of the night, and trample o'er the weak Republic's hopes. Crush all the Jedi who would block your way. Impale them all upon your vicious horns. Go, hounds of hell, and fiercely bare your teeth. Let every Jedi feel your awful bite. Rip limb from limb until their skin doth shred, and flay them whilst they live, that they may scream. Oh, pleasure most profound and sensual, to eat the heart of one's own enemies. Would that I could perform the deed myself. Look into every pair of Jedi eyes and watch as they for mercy humbly beg. Oh, sight most pitiful and wonderful. I'd happily run them through or choke their throats or strike them with the lightning of the Sith. Then how mine heart would sing as they expire. My soul would leap to hear their cries of pain. Die, light. Die any good that ever was. Die wisdom, yea, die virtue, die respect, die honor, die nobility, die right. These qualities shall perish on this day. For lo, the Sith do ply their merry tricks. Come, death, thy name is Order 66. questions. What was the first or maybe your favorite moment in which you really it sunk in that you had succeeded, that the public approval that there you had spoken to a group, you know, or a need or a mashup that had not existed, that moment that you're like, "Wow, they love me." You know, something like that. Or they love what I've done. 
Um, and two, I've got toddler neighbors who can barely wrap their vocabulary around Amidala and Millennium, but they're playing Star Wars. So who is the youngest fan that you have encountered who really actually has been able to embrace that advanced reading Shakespeare with this Star Wars that really the youngest child is embracing? Uh, so the first question, the first question is, is it's a little hard. Uh, the, the, I mean, I think the day was the day the first book came out. I mean, the book trailer had been released and it had, it had ramped up to like 250,000 views pretty quickly. And so that was exciting, but you still don't know if that's going to translate into sales. And the day the book came out, um, I was... Uh, just author, author's confession here, I was obsessively watching the, the sales rank of the book on Amazon, right? And when it got to number 10 on Amazon, I was like, okay, this is, this is going really well. Like, this is going to be good, right? And then, and then a, like a week later, I, a, my cell phone rang, and it was a 212 area code number, which is New York. And... My general rule is when New York calls, you answer. Uh, and so I answered it, and it was a reporter from the New York Times saying, we can't say anything official yet, but it looks like you're going to be on the New York Times bestseller list. And so I'd love to interview you really fast, because we'll write, you know, if so, we'll write a little call. And so that's one of those moments where you're like, it's, it's like David after dentist, right? It's like, is this really, ha- is this real life, you know? Uh, so that's, yeah, so that's that moment. Um, the youngest fan, I mean... I mean, probably the youngest has been kids who are like eight or nine who are super precocious readers. I mean, I, I did, at my book events, I often do, I often invite people from the audience up to read a scene with me. Uh, and, you know, I'll take whoever will volunteer. And, some, and, and I remember a book event where a kid volunteered and I was thinking, this kid is awfully young. And he came up and just knocked it out of the park. I mean, it was amazing, you know. So it really just depends. My boys are 11 and 13. When the first book came out, my son, who was probably 10 or 10 or so at the time, um, you know, tried it out, read a little bit. And he's a good reader and put it aside after a while, you know, and didn't read much more. Uh, they both just read the Deadpool comic that came out. So that's, you know, like... I feel like somewhere in there is, you know, sort of middle school age is about when a lot of kids can start doing it. Um, yeah. How, how do you feel? As we're going to the next question, I, I want to ask one, um, if there is any more questions. Um, how do you feel about this potentially being the first introduction of Shakespeare to some people? Well, uh, that's inevitable. Yeah, right? I feel... I feel really honored by it is how I feel about it. Um, uh, so, so some teachers, I've been in touch with a few teachers who are basically using, if not the whole book, then at least some scenes from the book to have their classes read it and then before, before they're moving into a Shakespeare unit, right? So let's get you used to iambic pentameter. Let's get you used to some of the language, that kind of thing, before you read real Shakespeare, and I would never, yeah, I'm the first to say this is not real Shakespeare, right? This is nothing like real Shakespeare. Um, and, and so, but hopefully, 
I mean, that was always, for me, reason number two for doing these books. Reason number one is I hope people just have fun with these and have a good time. They're, they're meant to be fun. Um, but reason number two is maybe this becomes a bridge into Shakespeare for kids. I recognize how lucky I was to have taken to Shakespeare easily and well and really enjoy Shakespeare and love Shakespeare when I was 14 years old. Because that's not the story that most people, that a lot of people, you know, have. That a lot of people, it's, you know, we read Shakespeare in high school and I hated it and I got through it and now I'm never going to read Shakespeare ever again. Um, and culturally, I think we have a lot of fear, especially in the States, about, about Shakespeare. You know, when kids are about to read him and you've already heard about Shakespeare and he's this amazing guy and he's, stuff is hard to read. And so I think there's already sort of a block there for, for kids before they start reading Shakespeare. And so if, if my books can help ease that transition into Shakespeare, then that's a huge honor for me. I imagine it probably helps that uh, they know the stories already. Absolutely, right. I mean, it feels like it's a safe context for some Shakespearean language and Shakespearean devices and that kind of thing. Yeah. Did we have any other questions from the audience? We've got one down here. Right here. So can you talk a little bit, my family loves the audio version, a little bit about doing that and the people that you did it with. Sure. So, um, so this is another one of those funny quirks about working with Lucasfilm. Uh, again, they own the copyrights to the book, so they can do whatever they want to with the books. And um, so I basically heard that the audiobooks were happening and was like, oh, could I, could I be involved with that? I'd, I'd love to be involved with that. Um, and so, uh, so the producer of the audiobooks is a guy named Kevin Thompson, and he does almost all of the Star Wars audiobooks. And he works with a handful of people who also re- of vocal artists who also record almost all of the Shakespeare I'm sorry, all of the Star Wars uh, audiobooks so Mark Thompson um, uh, January Lavoie um, Jonathan Davis these are three people who do a ton of the Star Wars audiobooks and so he basically assembled a little cast of characters right, and, and got them to, to record different voices and um, and brought in a couple other people as well. And, and I got to record, you know, a handful of small parts, which was just great and fun. You know, I'm going to a studio in Portland and they're sending the files to New York to, to be added in. Um, and then got to record my afterwards, you know, just as me. So, um, and that became a really fun relationship by the, by the well, so for, for Jedi, I, I got to do a couple of fun things. First of all, the producer asked me to write they were going to be putting out the audiobooks in a library edition um, where it'd be basically the only basically the only way you can get them on CD is from your from your library um, and there's a an Easter egg at the very end of Jedi on the on that set where it's you know it's it's a scene where I'm sitting at home writing and Shakespeare knocks on the door and walks in and basically comes in and critiques the work that I've done uh, and is not super impressed frankly you know uh, so I got to write that scene and record my half of it, and that was that was fun. Another super fun thing for Jedi, and and this is fun because I get to I get to drop a, a name, is which is always fun to do. Um, I went to school with a guy to college with a guy named Bobby Lopez, whose name will not be probably instantly familiar to most of you, but he's the guy who 
um, uh, wrote the musical Avenue Q and wrote all the music for Frozen with his wife um, and that sort of thing. And um, he, he, we were in the same college singing group together. And when the first book came out and he heard about what I was doing, he said, hey, if there's ever a theater, he got in touch with me and said, if there's ever a theater production of this, you know, and you're looking for somebody to write some like Elizabethan John Williams music, uh, he said, I always wanted to do a Star Wars project and would love to do it, you know. Um, and so that, you know, it was clear from Lucasfilm that that was not going to happen at least anytime soon. But for the audiobook for Jedi, uh, we knew we were going to have some songs. And I did, I wrote a few songs throughout these, pl- these books because Shakespeare had a few songs in his plays. And so he wrote the uh, music for the Elizabethan gangster rap that Jabba, uh, Jabba the Hutt's, the Max Rebo band does. Um, so that was, that was really fun, right? When you get to work with a friend of yours uh, who is also an amazing talent, um, you know, and to get to do that was really fun. Yeah. Did we have any other questions from the audience? One more. So, I, I'm, I'm sure you're tired of, perhaps you're tired of, of hearing questions or trying to talk about this, but uh, although there's this blanket no right now that's going on, you had mentioned that you were starting to get requests and inquiries about this. Of the ones that you're aware of, if magic happened and Lucasfilm were willing to reverse their policy, would there be one group or one artist or, that you're aware of that you would really like to see put on your books first? Well, short of the Royal Shakespeare Company doing it, let's pretend that's not an option. <laughs> uh, I mean, it, I'd love for the Oregon Shakespeare Festival to do it. I mean, I'm a, I'm a Portland native uh, and have lived there most of my life um, and would just be tickled pink if my, if my local Shakespeare Festival, which is a well-known Shakespeare Festival, but if my local Shakespeare Festival got to, got to do it, I uh, would be super happy. Uh, if we're talking about casting choices, uh, that's another, another question entirely. Um, you know, if I had my dream cast, right? Um, Emma Watson is my Princess Leia. Um, I've always kind of thought as Matt Damon is my Han Solo, but then you've got a really weird age thing going on there, um, which would be strange. Uh, Kenneth Branagh is my Obi-Wan Kenobi. Um, I'd love to have Kevin Klein be my chorus. Um, uh, yeah, I, these are things that you daydream about, right? Why not? If, uh, if you were going to pick a non-Star Wars movie to give this treatment to next, you know, what's, what's that movie that's in your wheelhouse where you're like, eh, you know, maybe that could work? Princess Bride. Princess Bride. Where I would... Now, that would be... A, it'd be weird. It'd be strange because... Well, I've always have the playwright on stage or something. I, I, yeah, and I've, I've always said that one of the reasons that Star Wars books work is because they were not books first. I get a lot of requests to do Lord of the Rings. Um, and my response to that is, why would you want to read Desher when you could just read Tolkien, right? Uh, and, and so Princess Bride is... There is a beloved book and a beloved movie, um, and both are beloved. And so I think, but I think you could write a fun play where in the soliloquies and the asides, you're getting some of the rich background from the book that you miss in the movie, uh, some of Inigo's backstory and Fezzik's backstory. And yeah, 
than a chorus coming in and saying, there was a scene here right, right, that was supposed yeah. to say this, but it's gone now. So. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's, that's the one that I would love to do. Yeah. So if, um, if, unless we have any more questions from the audience... Force Awakens? Uh, it's, I'm, I'm giving that a 95% chance and hopefully going up. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, so, uh, yeah. So about that, before we wrap up, and this is a question I asked you before, but would you prefer to write it now, singly, not knowing what's happening later, or would you rather do it after episode nine, where you actually know where all the story threads they've established in episode seven are leading to? And I, and I think there are pros and cons of doing it both ways. Um, one of the fun things about writing these books after they're all out is you get to foreshadow, you know, you get to have Luke say silly things like about Princess Leia, even if she were my sister, I couldn't care for her more, right? Um, which, which Lucasfilm almost took out, and they were like, you know, we groaned at this. And I thought to myself, well, if you can have Obi-Wan say to Anakin in, <clears throat> in uh, Attack of the Clones, you'll be the death of me, I think I can throw in that line. <laughs> so, um, so the benefit of doing it after all three have come out is that then you can do those sorts of things. And you also can probably play around a little bit more with some of the <clears throat> lore that will come up around these movies. Um, the fun of doing... The pro of doing them right after the movies come out is that... Or not right after, but, but before you, the next episode is out, is that then you get to wonder along with the audience, you know... Uh, about some of the mysteries that we, that, that we don't know about yet, right? Uh, who are Ray's parents, right? That's something that you could play around with a lot and that I hope I do get to play around with a lot uh, if I write that book. I think if they happen, they will probably happen uh, as the movies come out, not after they're all done. Well, um, I think we're about wrapped up, so I want to thank you so much for, for talking to us and coming thank up to so Salt much. Lake City for this. And uh, there's, you'll be around somewhere if you can get the information about where he's at. We have a table just outside the auditorium for you um, to do a signing. Yeah. Great. I'll be at that table. <laughs> Thank you all so much. Thank you. Yeah, as you can see, uh, or hear, rather, um, Ian was, was just a lot of fun. And, uh, you know... I'd love to see. I'd love to see him do the Force Awakens. I'd love to see him uh, do more Star Wars. I wouldn't mind him adapting episodes or arcs of Clone Wars. I think uh, more Shakespeare Star Wars is what the world needs. Uh, so, if you've enjoyed this episode, uh, uh, you know many thanks. Um, if you're looking for me, you can find me on Twitter at Swankmotron. Uh, or you can go to my website, uh, brianyoungfiction.com. Uh, you can find, uh, books of mine and, and whatnot there. Uh, if you want to read short stories of mine on Patreon, um, you can go support me there at patreon.com forward slash swankmotron. And as always, you can find the show at Full of Sith, uh, on Facebook, uh, Twitter, and our website, fullofsith.com. Uh, and you can find my stuff on StarWars.com regularly and uh, a number of other places on the website on BigShinyRobot.com, and, and, uh, which is where I review uh, Rebels episodes regularly. 
And, uh, you know, Ian Dosher, you can find him. Uh, he's just at Ian Dosher on Twitter and his website is, is Ian Dosher. And, uh, um, be sure to visit him and make sure you get copies of his, his books. They're, they're fantastic. Uh, and for Full of Sith, make sure that you, uh, leave reviews on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever else that you get, uh, get your podcasts. So for this special release of Full of Sith, I'm Brian Young. And the Force will be with you, always. If you're not be meeting me, I'll close down for a while. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you Lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.